Welcome to episode 37 in the third season of Justice with John Carpe, the podcast from the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. I'm the show's producer, Kevin Steele, and I'm here today with Justice Center lawyer Andre Mamari, who hails from the great prairie province of Saskatchewan. Andre is involved with quite a few of the Justice Center files. For instance, the Seneca College Vax Mandate Challenge, the lawsuit of Dr. Francis Christian, the charter challenge to Saskatchewan's COVID gathering limits, etc., etc. But before we get into all of that, since this is your first time on the show, let me say welcome to you, Andre. Thanks. Good to be with you. Perhaps we can start out by asking you to introduce yourself. Sure. Uh, well, I'm uh, uh, here in the province of Saskatchewan. I've been practicing law since 2014. I graduated in 2012. I articled in Manitoba. I had a very interesting articling experience. It was sort of a mix between private practice and working in what we call the trenches of Canada, where we were practicing, I was practicing in a criminal law uh, legal aid clinic uh, in downtown Winnipeg. So you can imagine the type of cases that came forth. And uh, so I had an interesting articling experience and I I moved back to Saskatchewan where I've pretty much grown up. Um, And uh, I practiced uh, about seven or so years in very intense litigation matters, primarily in family matters which uh, uh, can become actually quite complicated. A lot of people think that family matters is really just about custody and access, but family matters can extend on for many years. And by the time some some of the cases get to the Court of Appeal, I know I had one case that had seven bankers' boxes of materials uh, and very complicated property division issues. So I've uh, been at all levels of court, uh, other than the Supreme Court, been in the Federal Court of Appeal, Federal Court of Force, and all levels of court here in Saskatchewan. And it's uh, it's been a fruitful experience thus far. I was also coaching the Jessup Moot, which is a very interesting experience. The Jessup Moot is essentially all of the many of the law schools uh, around the world. Nearly all countries are part of this, but many law schools from virtually all countries compete in this international competition every year. And they have their own nationals, and they all work with the same hypothetical problem. And the national champions of every country then uh, descend on Washington, D.C., where they compete in the World Cup. And they, uh, they compete over... This, this problem, this hypothetical problem that mirrors real-life problems. And the materials and the arguments that come from there, in fact, they're at such a high level that the U.S. Department of Defense attends them and gains the view of the international laws of that particular problem, which typically mirrors, like I said, the real-world problems. So it's a very, very interesting experience. I competed in it myself uh, in 2012 in Montreal, and I was a finalist in Canada. We didn't make we didn't make it past the final. We lost in the finals, but uh, but we were we won some awards that year. And I went back to law school to to serve as coach for I believe five years. So that's that was always a, an excellent experience. I also served as a special prosecutor for some time over cases where the crown was in some sort of a conflict. So, you know, the person being prosecuted was um, of their own or a high profile person in, in, in the police or something of that sort. And typically they farm those out to a special prosecutor, an agent prosecutor is what it's typically called. I jokingly would tell people I was a federal agent, but I was actually an agent federal prosecutor. And that was uh, some interesting work. It was, you know, a file here or there, but I was primarily litigating. And then when COVID happened, I was actually in Toronto for the Jessup National Championship that year in 2020. 
And here I was in downtown Toronto, and the news was speaking of uh, this virus that was devastating, and it was coming out of China, and it had some sort of relation to China at the time, is what the news was saying. And I actually came down with this really bad chest cold. It was really the worst chest cold I'd ever had. And I'm seeing all this stuff in the news and I'm wondering, gee, you know, <laughs> maybe I have this. And so I went down to a mediclinic and this bus arrived uh, and it was tourists from China and they were all sick and they were at this mediclinic. And I have this horrible chest cold and the news is saying there's this virus. And this is back in, it would have been February of 2020. So I thought I for sure had this. And, uh, you know, I was, I was concerned with all the things that were, that were going on. And we were all seeing all these images from all over the world with the spraying of the streets and people dying on the streets. And uh, they, put, uh, they put societies in fear, significant fear with those initial projections that they were models that they had uh, disseminated. And I think rightfully so, a lot of us were in a cautionary moment and we were, we were concerned as to, you know, what may come. But the, it didn't take long, I think oh, between February and I'd say April and May, it's, the, the picture started to become much clearer about right. what was going on. Yeah, that's how I recall it. Yeah, I was following uh, Dr. Francis Boyle who is this international law expert. He's uh, arguably, he's, he's uh, you know, some call him a publicist. I don't know, but he has uh, uh, been involved in high level prosecutory work at the uh, International Court of Justice before. He was one of the authors of um, the Biological Weapons Treaty in the U.S. And his perspective was vastly different than what the media was saying. And I found him to be very compelling. And, and then that opened a can of worms into uh, a lot of considerations and looking at all the inconsistencies that many Canadians have been seeing roll out with respect to the response to COVID-19 in Canada. And at this point, you're going to say you joined the Justice Centre somewhere in there? <laughs> That's right. I, uh, I, I joined the Justice Centre in 2021. In roughly about a year ago now, actually, it was, it was the beginning of October. I was still in private practice at the time, uh, the first year. And uh, I just, you know, based on my, my deep research in international affairs, international relations, geopolitical affairs, history, and international law, and all these things put together, I had a very different perspective as to what was, what was unfolding in, in Canada so I, I, I wanted to know, you know, what organization is stepping up and fighting for the rights and freedoms of Canadians, putting the evidence, the facts, the truth in front of the court. And undoubtedly, it, uh, it led me to the Justice Centre. And I was very, very fortunate to have the opportunity to join the team and uh, get involved at the ground level in in helping to fight for the rights and freedoms of Canadians, and it's been uh, it's been a very interesting year. It's been a very busy year. I've been involved in a number of cases. Uh, right at the outset, in fact, uh, I believe it was just in the first few months of joining the Justice Centre, I was involved in in the case involving the New Brunswick matter, where the uh, Fredericton Farmers Market had decided to close its doors to not permit the vaccine-free citizens from being able to make purchases at the farmer's market, which was very concerning. I mean, this was, things were getting to a point in which I had many people contacting me worried that they may not be permitted to purchase food if they weren't vaccinated. Everybody was pretty freaked out by that. It was a very unfortunate development. Fortunately, though, we were able to uh, resolved that matter fairly quickly, and thankfully some MPs, and uh, th there was a concerted effort by a number of different people that uh, weren't necessarily connected. They responded, and, and that matter was resolved fairly quickly. But it was just the beginning of many other cases that, uh, that I was involved in over the last year. So it's been a very uh, interesting and growing experience, Kevin. Oh, yeah, I see that you've got a long list of cases you're involved with here. So let's start by talking about one that isn't your case yet. 
something you brought up just before we started talking on the podcast. I wasn't too familiar with it because it's, uh, I guess, uh, pretty fresh. But this is the death of Carol Pierce. This is something that you wanted to start off with. It's not actually involved in any cases at this point. It's pretty new, isn't it? That's right. It, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a new story. It, it's a development here in, in Saskatchewan that's very concerning. Um, my understanding of what's occurred is that uh, you have this, this mother of, of, I believe, an adult child who had attended the sh- a shopper's drug mart in Saskatoon to receive her booster shot. And she did, in fact, receive her booster shot. And minutes later, she, unfortunately, she passed away. Uh, and this left a lot of people, obviously, uh, quite traumatized, both at shoppers and as well as obviously her family. This story was circulating all over social media. And of course, the first question is, well, is the story real? And what are the facts and what happened? Pause with that story for a moment. Many months ago, there was this, or there is this organization in Saskatchewan called Sask Alliance. And Sask Alliance, uh, through its council, did a LAFOIP, uh, a Freedom of Information request to the Saskatchewan Health Authority. And some of the things that it was seeking was for a record of the adverse reactions with respect to COVID-19 vaccinations that have taken place. And they did receive eventually a, a, a response. And in fact, they were provided and supplied with a 122-page document that identified, I think, over 1,200 uh, adverse reactions that were recorded. And amongst those 1,200-plus adverse reactions, the document identifies that there were seven deaths since, I believe, December of 2020 until January or February of 2022. And now going back to the story of Carol Pierce, the Ministry of Health, I believe through one of their spokespeople, recently, since the, since the passing of Ms. Pierce, has identified that the, that in Saskatchewan, there are no known deaths with respect to COVID-19 vaccinations. And, and in addition to that, he, he identifies that uh, an, an investigation into the circumstances surrounding Ms. Pierce's death identifies that she died of natural causes. So the first an obvious major concern here is that the Saskatchewan Health Authority, in response to a Freedom of Information request has delineated seven deaths in relation to the vaccination. And then you have the Ministry of Health coming out saying there are no deaths. So which is it? The Saskatchewan Health Authority seems to think there are seven deaths, but the ministry says there are none. Now, what could be the basis behind the ministry statement? Uh, or do they have it wrong? Uh, was there miscommunication between the ministry and the Saskatchewan Health Authority that uh, administers health? Is it a cover-up? What is it? And Saskatchewan residents deserve to know. They deserve to know the real facts in relation to adverse reactions with respect to the vaccine. And if there, in fact, are seven deaths, as has been stated by the Saskatchewan Health Authority, the ministry must recant its statement and publicly advise of these deaths so that the public is aware of the truth. And uh, it's a necessary component of informed consent that people do understand that there are life-threatening possible reactions, as little as they may be or as few as they may be, and that people are aware of of this story. Uh, I'm very concerned that the Ministry of Health appears to provide a very different story than the Saskatchewan Health Authority, and I'm hoping that this will be clarified for the public. If nothing else, Ms. Pierce's passing, the public needs to know uh, all of the circumstances surrounding her death. And quite frankly, if the ministry is not providing accurate information with respect to injuries, including death, with respect to vaccines, there is a loss of confidence that naturally comes from that outcome. 
And so the public is entitled, and I suspect her family members, Ms. Pierce's family members, deserve to know uh, a fulsome response, a fulsome investigation into the circumstances surrounding her death. It's very odd and suspicious that she would die minutes after being injected. And uh, it is possible that someone may die of natural causes minutes after being uh, injected. But to simply state that it had nothing to do with the vaccine and simultaneously indicate to the public that there are no known deaths when the Saskatchewan Health Authority says otherwise uh, raises a significant amount of concern and alarm for, for the residents of Saskatchewan. That's putting it mildly. The background to this are those seven deaths. You know, yes, we want uh, a full report on what happened to uh, Carol Pierce, of course, rest in peace. But we also want to know what happened to those other seven. Did they pass away shortly afterwards? Did they pass away from complications down the road? I can understand why you wanted to highlight that. So where where exactly is it right now? Do you have any course of action you can take to sort of force the issue? Well, I, I can advise that... Uh there are a number of very concerned um, lawyers uh, with respect to what there's this issue. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what's going to exactly come of it, but I think the unanimous expectation uh, is that the ministry of health clarifies its statements in relation to the seven deaths that have been, that have been identified by the Saskatchewan health authority. So someone's got it wrong here and we need some clarity around that issue. And the ministry of health, has an obligation to clarify that issue. Now, if the Ministry of Health does not properly resolve this issue, they don't come forth and clarify their statement or recant their statement or you know, identify what the facts are knowingly and intentionally mislead the public, well, then we've got a very serious problem that is actionable. Now, the Charter may not necessarily be a part of that. That's more of a public misfeasance type of situation. But uh, we'll see how it how this develops. I know that there's a vigil for her tomorrow at, in front of the Shoppers Drug Mart. I understand there are a lot of people that will be going. I know there's a, a member that uh, or an individual who's running for election in one of the one of the by-elections, he'll be speaking at it. And uh, I don't know who, whoever else is there. But the anticipation right now is that there is some mourning in the community for the loss of this individual, uh, and some clarity will absolutely be necessary, necessary surrounding her death, but also surrounding the deaths of these other individuals, as you indicated. And, and I know that there are a number of, like I mentioned, uh, lawyers as well as physicians who are going to be demanding clarity from the Ministry of Health in due course. And in terms of uh, the specifics of how that will occur, I don't know yet at this time, but it is a very concerning development. Right. Thanks a lot for bringing it to our attention here. I, I did see a story about it, but I didn't realize the implication with the seven previous deaths. So, yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Okay, now I suppose we can move on to one of your cases, and that is the Seneca College Vax Mandate case. This is something that you had a recent decision, not on the final but on an injunction maybe you could just tell us quickly about the injunction or tell us outline the case and tell us how the injunction fit into that i understand it was denied absolutely yes unfortunately we we came to learn of uh of a loss of that application in the ontario ontario superior court essentially back last year early this year it was I, I believe in january we had uh filed an application with respect to charter relief on behalf of four students who, unfortunately, they, they were unable to attend uh, and complete their education at Seneca College. And uh, I believe all of them were in their final year of school. And so their lives were frozen and put on hold, essentially, with respect to finishing their education at the time. And they, uh, they were very concerned with respect to their rights to finish school. And they had a far different uh, perspective of the benefits or consequences of this vaccination scheme. And so we launched a, an application back in January. Seneca had raised some initial concerns with the matter being 
essentially converted into an action that they, they opine that it should really be an action and not an application. And I won't go into the depths of that, but they had some initial concerns about that, which led which led us to actually amend our application to sort of rephrase a, a small part of the case, which was the interpretation of their contractual rights. Because of course, these students have a contract. They paid the school. They, they have a contract that they paid the school and then they receive education based on specified terms. And none of those terms involve them receiving a, a novel injection of a vaccine that they did not want to receive. And Seneca essentially had threatened that they were going to bring this application to convert to, into an action. They never did until recently. And so we were forced to wait many months to go to a, a, a case management conference in order to get the judge to actually schedule uh, their intended motion that they could have simply just brought anyway. And in June of this year, on June 29th, the president of Seneca then uh, identifies that they're going to maintain a vaccination, you know, fully vaccinated policy into the fall term, which then, you know, the students were really hopeful. They were hoping that there wouldn't be any more vaccine mandates because, of course, virtually all the schools, almost all of them in all of Ontario did not have these restrictions. They had other types of restrictions. And of course, we know Western Ontario uh, afterwards uh, attempted to, to do the same thing, but then they recanted or delayed it. So nearly all the schools, if not all of them, did not have this policy. And so the students simply thought, well, hopefully this year there won't be one. But the uh, uh, the school had a different plan. And so they advised of this policy. So the students uh, then decided, well, it's it's time to bring an injunction application to to hopefully be able to finish school. And this was two of the four applicants. You, you should know these two. I mean, these are two young single mothers. One of them has many kids, uh, multiple children. The other has, uh, I believe, children or a child as well. And so they're just making ends meet. They're uh, doing their best to survive the circumstances. And so when cross-examination came, there, the lawyer for Seneca had essentially brought forward evidence uh, or questioned them on what they were doing to to essentially care for themselves. And they may not have found the the highest paying, best possible job in all of Ontario, but they were gainfully employed and doing their best to provide for their children as they were hoping to return to school. And in any event, so the the case went forward, we were simply arguing an injunction application. And on an injunction application, the court has a, it's called the RJR test, and they have a specific way of looking at things. They don't, they're not there to rule on, on a final determination, whether these students have what the court's view of their, uh, on a final basis, their, their claims are. However, the, the decision, uh, and from our perspective, contains multiple errors in the way the court viewed the decision. It, it mischaracterized the injunction as a mandatory injunction, which is different than the injunction that they were seeking. They were seeking the school to stop their enforcement of their policy rather than to require them to do something that they would not essentially otherwise be doing. And so... In any event, the court went into a very deep dive into the charter analysis, which motions judge doesn't typically do on an injunction application. And and another exception is if it would be a final determination of the issue if the judge ruled in their favor. So if the judge let him go back to school, would that be the end of the case, you know, and make the rest of the case moot? Well, it wouldn't, because firstly, they had they were seeking damages. They were also seeking the court to interpret contractual rights. And there's no clear evidence that, without a doubt, that the application judge later would not have an opportunity to weigh in before these students would be done school. So essentially, there there wouldn't truly be a final determination of the issue. And Seneca had raised that the requirement to be vaccinated essentially has this sort of public... uh, interest exception where, you know, there's a presumption that it's in the public good and that the threshold would be really high to challenge. But the case law with respect to the public interest exception is applicable in matters where you're challenging an enacted law. 
enacted laws arguably have a bit of a different background than a, a school policy, an internal school policy. Enacted laws require uh, members to vote and members who represent constituencies and essentially it, it forms the will of the public in some respects. But this internal school policy has a bit of a different, uh, it's not an enacted law. And so the presumption of the public interest is not, in, arguably not the same. In any event, the court went and did a deep dive and did an analysis into the charter arguments, which we, in in our view, was was done incorrectly, but in any event, uh, that it wasn't for that uh, injunction motion for the court to make any final rulings on those sort of things. And and there appears to be a a fairly conclusive determination on those issues uh, in that motion. Now, the other thing, the other aspect of this, which was rather concerning, is the treatment of our expert in this decision. And of course, Dr. Bridal, I mean, he's known around the country. He's an expert in a number of cases. And when one reads this decision, it almost appears as though there's a there's almost an assassination of his expertise, which is very unfortunate. You see, Dr. Bridal is a vaccinologist, immunologist, and an epidemiologist. He's he's really the trifecta. Uh, he's been awarded as a as an exceptional reviewer for the C- Canadian Institute of Health Research for I believe he got that designation in 2019. Essentially, he's reviewing all or some of the proposals for vaccine research in Canada for infectious diseases. And he's in the development of the vaccines for infectious diseases. And he's, um, he's got uh, hundreds of publications. I mean, he is absolutely a very qualified expert in the area of vaccines themselves and the science behind vaccines themselves. He's not a clinician. He's not a physician. So he's not going to be a physician that you're going to go see if you're not feeling well. But he's a scientist. He's a Canadian scientist that is in the development of vaccines and vaccine research. So his perspective is going to be very unique in the overall consideration of the science issues with respect to a vaccine mandate. Because, of course, a vaccine mandate involves a vaccine. And he's the expert on the vaccine. He may not come at it from the same angle that other experts would, that are physicians or epidemiologists, or, but he's got that background as well, because there's a lot of overlap between these fields of study as his cross-examination identified. Now, the court went on to essentially, you know, indicate that he's providing information well outside of his expertise, which is, in our view, incorrect, and that... Um, there was some commentary about 88 of Dr. Bridal's colleagues at Guelph who had written an open letter, essentially they called the Guelph letter, an open letter condemning him for his view. And the court identified that. And then there was a letter in support of him by a number of people. And the issue is that, first of all, science is not a popularity contest. The truth is the truth, even if one person believes it. Uh, science is about a testing of ideas. It's about replication. You, provoke, you put forward a hypothesis. The hypothesis is tested by others. It's peer-reviewed. If the same conclusion is drawn, it lends credence to the hypothesis. If the same conclusion is not drawn by other scientists, well, it, it's put, it puts it to question. Now, in this particular circumstance, you know, the court identified that 88 of his colleagues in Guelph had, had essentially condemned him. But the, in his cross-examination, first of all, he identified that many of or several of, of of those signatories recanted their signatures after the fact when they realized that what he was saying about myocarditis was actually true. Because he was, you see, he was one of the first scientists to stand up and say, well, this might cause myocarditis. And in fact, myocarditis now is listed by Public Health Canada as one of the possible adverse reactions to the vaccine. And what the court didn't identify in the decision is the 88 signatories also included people in linguistics, history, arts, and all these other non-science-based uh, disciplines, although there were a number that were in science-based disciplines, but it also included folks who were not. And then the court identified that uh, the letter in support of him, 800 or so, uh, which is incorrect because the number of the signatories in support were actually 8,273, if I'm not mistaken. 
473 of which were scientists and physicians. And it, it identified that there were people who were, you know, members of the public and holistic practices as well as physicians, but also, so it sort of characterized this letter as, as being, you know, a few physicians with some holistic type people and then members of the public. And it didn't fairly characterize the other letter. And so you see this sort of gymnastics with what's going on with these letters that in in our view is is certainly not appropriate. I think that the appellate court ought to review the evidence in its entirety in the record. And the public is very concerned about these issues. You see, in Ontario, there is a decision in the family law courts that had recently come out, I believe in, on, on August 29th. Mr. Justice Corkery had, had identified a number of concerns and important considerations, and he had agreed with Justice Pazarat in a different family law decision that had come earlier. And what he identified in that decision are very critical things to note. First, that the facts of COVID-19 are changing. And of course they are. I mean, we're seeing that right before our eyes uh, all over the world. Of course, the facts are changing. There's variants. There's different approaches to resolving it. There's, you know, there's all kinds of things that are changing. And so uh, you cannot simply just you know, take the same tool to, the, to a changing issue. And moreover, the court identified that the government is, in, is not infallible, that there are a number of historical examples where the government got it wrong and Badly so. In fact, so bad that the government's continuing to apologize for when it has been wrong. So unfortunately, it appears that we're in a situation right now where we're living tomorrow's apology now. And so this case was brought to the court's attention that the facts of COVID-19 are changing. Government's approach is not infallible. The court ought to consider a new and fresh approach. And public health has changed its, its approach, even though public health supports some sort of policies, vaccination policies, the public health, Dr. Kieran Moore didn't say that he supports an all-out vaccination-only policy. And and Dr. Kieran Moore's public statements is, is that he supports vaccination policies. But, but he didn't state what kind of policies. And the Ontario government did actually provide instructions to secondary schools, which they've since lifted, but they did provide instructions where it included an alternative to vaccination as testing. Seneca did not comply with that alternative. It was noted in section four of the instructions and the court did not include section four of the instructions in its analysis. In the end, it doesn't, the instructions were not at play in any event, but at the time that they were, our view was that the section four of the instructions were not complied with and the court in its analysis did not bring up section four. And I, I provided specific oral arguments with respect to section four and it's missing from the decision. And that's a, that's a concern. Now there's a, there's a number of other perceived errors with this decision and because it's an injunction motion and it's an essentially an interlocutory proceeding because of that, uh, you have to seek leave, meaning you have to you have to essentially seek permission to appeal this decision. And so we're going to, uh, I, I believe there's going to be new counsel on this case. And uh, they are uh, in the process of preparing uh, documents accordingly and that they and they will they will go on to seek leave and appeal that decision. And hopefully that decision is appealed and and it's successful because it stands to be of significant concern in terms of uh, here you have this decision where Canadian citizens cannot go to a public institution to receive education and non-Canadian citizens as of September 30th can enter the country and do as they please without vaccination. So while I fully support non-Canadian citizens coming in and, and supporting our tourism and welcoming them here, to travel and and enjoy the great views of Canada and all that it has to offer. I do not support non-Canadian citizens coming and freely doing as they please, but not Canadian citizens not being able to go to school to finish their education. I mean, it it just makes no, absolutely no sense. So we'll see what, uh, what ends up happening eventually with this case. The court did heavily rely on it, on an or, older decision and what I would say an archaic decision in, in the COVID world, because even though the, the TTC decision had come 
a year prior. Uh, in the COVID world, that's archaic because the facts are changing, because we're learning a lot more about the science and, and about the approaches to address COVID-19. And so we'll see where this, uh, this case ends up. Well, there were two things that jumped out at me there. First of all, was the they went too far? Is that the way under they went too far with their charter analysis? Is that what you said? It wasn't relevant here. Is that correct? Am I characterizing that properly? You you are. You see, the the court in an injunction motion generally is supposed to determine: is there a real issue to be tried here eventually? That's what it's supposed to do. And okay. there are exceptions to that. Where there it's a it, where if he does if he gives the injunction it makes it a final determination there's no more case there's that's an exception so if that's the case he can do a deeper analysis or if there's a presumed public interest benefit as a result of the law this this enacted law which this wasn't so neither neither of those exceptions apply and the court went and did a deep dive and also mischaracterized the injunction as a mandatory injunction, but it isn't a mandatory injunction. So you understood that cl- uh, correctly. The court was, in this case, should have simply determined whether there was a tribal issue or not. Right. The other thing was the sort of dismissive nature of the expert witness for the Justice Center, the Dr. Bridal. That is pretty obvious when you read this. Does that form part of the appeal if you get leave to appeal? Oh, absolutely it will. Absolutely it will. You see the the decision essentially said, well, Seneca's experts say that Dr. Bridal essentially can't be trusted or that he's got the science wrong. And so because of that, well, we better take a look at the science of Dr. Bridal with caution. But the court didn't consider that Dr. Bridal had to say, well, the science of the Seneca experts are concerning for A, B, and C. Uh, it goes both ways. And so uh, if if there's a determination of credibility, there better be viva voce hearing in person to determine that. But that's that's going so deep into an injunction application that you're into the weeds at that point. I, I think the treatment of Dr. Bridal in this decision is unwarranted. It's not supported by the evidence. And the characterization of the evidence was incorrect, in, as I indicated with respect to the letters. Uh, and it, it seems as though the court just picked one of the uh, experts and said, well, because this expert thinks that expert is this way, then I'll treat that expert that way. And and then we'll just go off of that. Good. I'm, well, I'm glad it's going to be part of the appeal. What uh, stage are we at? Like, What kind of timeline are we looking at for the main case? Because this injunction, of course, just sort of lands in the middle. That's right. So Typically, a, a charter application like this case should have already been heard and decided. Unfortunately, Seneca is, uh, is, is seeking to convert this case into an action, which really would be a totally different way of dealing with this case. And they have their motion to convert it to an action, uh, I believe, in early October. So that's another step before we even get anywhere to any consideration of the real issues here. Um, so in terms of, you know, where are we at? We're in a complicated zone. Uh, we have our appeal, that the motion to seek to leave for the appeal that is going to be filed. That'll have to be decided. That'll have to be considered. In the meantime, their motion to consider the whether to convert it into an action as opposed to it just going to court and, and an application being heard summarily, quick, more quickly, uh, that'll have to be decided. Once these two issues are resolved, then we can get to the next stage. And it's hard to say at this point, you know, if they're successful, the next stage looks is a completely different picture. If mm. they're not successful, then it'll be an application. And I expect that that'll be hopefully heard and resolved uh you know within six months maybe sooner but uh but we'll see i mean we're in a bit of an unknown zone the first thing that we've got to deal with here is is new council needs to deal with this motion for leave to appeal and i'm really hoping that the appellate court says well look we've got some conflicting views of COVID 19 in ontario you have some judges saying the government's infallible that or not infallible, and that uh, COVID facts are changing, and 
And, you know, there's all these concerns and people have the right to ask very reasonable questions and so on and so forth. And then you have other judges saying, well, you know, go ahead and have a mandatory vaccination policy is essentially the only school at this point in the pandemic when public health isn't even doing it. So, you know, given the major conflict and diverging views and given the application of the law and and misapprehension of the evidence as we perceive it, I'm hoping the the appellate court reviews this case. And I know there's another appeal that uh, was heard on Thursday, so that would have been yesterday, on the TTC matter. Uh, and so we'll see. And that was appealed. And so the Court of Appeal or the, the, the appellate court that's reviewing that decision is going to be providing a decision on that decision. And so we'll see what happens. A lot of moving parts, Kevin. Yeah, actually, just to clarify, what, what, what was that TTC decision that you were talking about? Just clarify that for me. Yeah, so this, if you remember Justice Akbar Ali of, of the Ontario Superior Court last year, I believe the uh, there were a lot of union workers who, TTC and the amalgamated transunion folks who who had brought forward an injunction application because they didn't want to be vaccinated. And their evidence was that I don't want to be vaccinated, but I don't have a choice. to. I got to feed my family. Please put an injunction in so I can go to work and not receive this vaccine. But if if I don't win, I'm going to vaccinate because I don't have any other option. So then you had a bunch of people who were vaccinated against their will, if you will, and they've appealed that decision. And uh, so we'll see. I mean, that wasn't our case, mm. but it was a it was a groundbreaking injunction decision that was used in our case. The the court had used the reasoning of that judge in that case in our case from a year ago in order to to essentially say that there's no irreparable harm. There's no according to according to this this honorable judge. There's no irreparable harm for a young single mother or young single mothers barely making ends meet living in downtown Toronto or the surrounding region having to find some work to put food in their children's mouths while being completely frozen from being able to go to school and finish the last remaining year of their education and that these folks arguably present a threat to the health and safety of others and and that uh, they can remain on a leave of absence until this policy is no longer in place. And these people, these students, these single mothers, they were put into a position of having to decide to go against their own conscience while suffering damages and paying for these student loans while trying to feed their kids or not going against their conscience and still suffering to essentially pay back their student loans, not finish their education and pay for their education. So that position, any Canadian citizen being put into that position at this point in time is egregious. It's egregious. How is that not irreparable harm? How is it not irreparable harm for a young single mother to be put into that position to decide? And the argument from Seneca, and and I see the common argument on the other side of the fence, is that, well, no one's forcing you to do it. There's consequences to your choices. But the very position that they're put in to have to decide that particular decision itself is egregious. And coercive, yes. I I see it as being very coercive. You know, they say, oh, nobody's forcing you to. Uh, Yeah, except for circumstances uh, that you have created around my life are forcing me to take it. So when you put it like that... Okay, so uh, that one we can just table for now. I did want to get on to the lawsuit of Dr. Francis Christian. This is something that uh, was on your plate as well. We haven't heard an update from that in a while. Perhaps you could just uh, let us know what's going on with that. Absolutely. So Dr. Francis Christian had filed the statement of claim, which is different than an application. That's going to be a lengthy process, but it's going to give us the benefit of discoveries, which means we're, we're really going to really see a, a very deep dive into the evidence. We're going to be entitled to a lot of evidence along the way. So he filed the statement of claim. The other parties have provided their statements of defense. We are examining the statements of defense and uh, deliberating in terms of our legal position. 
uh, our le- legal position will not change significantly, if at all, though there may be a slight pivot. And uh, once that's concluded, which will be in short order, I imagine over the next week or two, uh, we will be scheduling uh, here in Saskatchewan, we have a mandatory mediation session in these types of lawsuits where parties will have a without prejudice meeting in, at, a, at a mediation session to try and resolve their issues. And I actually think it's a it's a really good process. Uh, claims that are not as intense, sometimes there is hope that there's some resolution at the outset. And so it's proven for in Saskatchewan to be actually quite an effective way of essentially helping uh, or giving litigants an opportunity to resolve their problems without having to go through the entire process of the justice uh, system. So in in any event, um, there will be a mandatory mediation session regarding this issue. I won't comment on my, my perspective of how that will go or how it's anticipated to go or what we hope to achieve out of it, but we will attend. And that mediation session will occur. And then subsequent to that mediation session, provided there's no resolution in any case, and again, I'm not going to comment on my expectation in that regard, but I will identify that provided that there is no uh, resolution, the next stage, there's going to be discoveries where we're essentially going to be uh, exchanging documents and information and we'll be seeking uh, some the discovery process and then we proceed on to cross-examination or rather questioning of the witnesses. So we'll be questioning, we'll be having a lot of questions and I anticipate uh, that'll be a very interesting experience. The defendants in this case, uh, there's a lot of questions uh, that are going to be put before them that need to be put before them. And it's going to be quite illuminating what they have to say about certain aspects of public health and, and their perspective on th- certain things. So we look forward to that process very much. And so upon conclusion of that process, there will be a trial. And this will be a full-blown trial. So, And this is a, uh, going to be, a, in my estimation, a very significant defamation lawsuit in addition to the rest of the relief sought. As I indicated in a prior interview, these types of defamation lawsuits, uh, they're, they're going to be extensive. It's going to be very extensive. The, the SHA and, and the other defendants are going to have to dig very deep into their pockets if, if they're seeking to resolve this matter because this is uh, they've destroyed, essentially, absolutely d- dealt a death blow to Dr. Francis Christian by calling him a dangerous uh, individual. I had indicated there was a case in Texas where a similar a physician was identified as being dangerous for similar circumstances, although this other physician was a clinician um, successfully treating thousands of uh, COVID-19 patients uh, using other treatments, and uh, that she, she, was, she was identified as being dangerous. It's essentially a death blow to your career. Who would want to go to see an average unsuspecting citizen how would they want to go see a physician that's publicly in the news called a dangerous physician? I mean, I, I don't know about you, but uh, yeah, an unsuspecting person would, I would imagine, not want to be anywhere near a, a publicly characterized dangerous physician. So, so it's been a death blow to his career. He has retired. It's, in our view, a forced retirement. He would have continued to work for many years. He had a very successful career here. He, he was a very highly regarded physician, in, in, a surgeon in, in our community, you know, with no notable issues on his record whatsoever. In fact, he had a very, very solid record and, and a very successful surgical career and a very, and, and I'm sure that your viewers and yourself, you're aware of Dr. Francis Christian. What, a, what an honorable and ethical and moral physician. And uh, in fact, he, as you know, he was a, a director of surgical humanities as well as uh, he, he essentially, ethics was a big part of his career. So lo and behold, that's why he's in this position. He's so ethical that he spoke out and with respect to basic medical ethical principles. And unfortunately, he was, he was whipped for doing so. And and so there's going to have to be some justice in this case, and we look forward to it. Unfortunately, it, it is going to be a slow process with that particular case, but we will certainly keep you apprised of it, Kevin.
Oh, yeah, for sure. What uh, I find interesting <clears throat> is the fact that the College of Medicine is involved in this, along with the University of Saskatchewan and the Saskatchewan Health Authority. They don't get included in a lot of cases that I've seen anyway, but I'm glad to see they're involved in this one. I just want to clarify one thing. At the beginning of your description of the process, you talked about a meeting without prejudice. And I just want you to clarify what that without prejudice means. Does that mean it doesn't impact anything that comes afterwards? That's right. So now people don't like to hear that there's closed door meetings and, and, and essentially they're secretive. But in the litigation world, when you have these large cases or any case for that matter, the court provides an opportunity the justice system provides an opportunity for people to go into a room and resolve their differences and speak openly and try to settle matters without having the fear that someone later is going to say, well, you said this at that meeting and you did this and you were prepared to do that. And you, so you're not going to have a really productive meeting unless people put their arms down and say, okay, we're going to have a open and honest discussion and whatever's discussed here is not going to be part of this proceeding and it's an opportunity to settle. And so I, I, I'm actually quite an advocate for that process because I've seen it work. I've seen it work for many cases where people are not, they sort of put down their uh, aggressive hats and then they, they try to settle. Now it's not for every case. And in my view, it's not for most cases. I shouldn't say it's not for most cases, it's for all cases, but it doesn't work for most cases. And the reason is, is because it's early in the process. People are not exhausted by the litigation, you know, the, the years of litigation, and they're less inclined to settle. Now, there is something called a pretrial conference, and that's, uh, you know, before tr a, trial ha a trial happens. And at that time, you know, near the end of the process, that's a much more, I find, fruitful and effective way of settling matters without prejudice. Okay, when you say without prejudice, that means you can't bring it up later? I just want to clarify that. You know, and are there yeah, penalties right. for bringing it up later? What if somebody disobeys the, uh, the notion of without prejudice? <clears throat> Do they get censored or something? No, you're right. It, without prejudice means precisely what you identified. Can't bring it up. Can't bring it up later. Can't bring it up anywhere at any point. What happens if someone brings it up later? Well, it, if you do, like if, if there's in any context, it'll be struck from the record. Now, some people may scratch their heads and say, well, yeah, but the judge read that and the judge heard that. And that's true. But judges, after having usually a, a fairly lengthy career in law and, and then being on the bench, they know how to consider things without weighing in their minds things they're not supposed to and things that they can't take into consideration. And so their analysis and their, the way they're supposed to think things through, they're not permitted to consider, they're not to include that as part of their consideration. Now, people are human beings, and when they hear something, they know it. Does that change the you know the view of the judge well it's not supposed to and they sh and and typically in my view from my experience i haven't had significant concerns that when a judge hears something without prejudice and they strike it from the record that they won't consider i think typically judges do a, a fairly good job of that and so and lawyers know better than to bring up things that were without prejudice and so it's not common practice that people do. Okay. I guess we, uh, well, we're getting close to the end of the show here, but we better deal with this elephant in the room. And that's the fact that the Saskatchewan courts have ruled that their limits on gatherings are justifiable. They are breaching the charter, but they are justifiable. And that ruling just came down. Were you involved in that case? I was uh, I was involved in that case. Uh, I was not the lead lawyer on that case, and so I am now uh, going to be taking that case on and on to onward to the court of appeal. We will be appealing that decision. Okay. I'm in the process of doing a very detailed review of the evidence to determine my my own thoughts and my own uh, approach with respect to prayers for relief in the notice of appeal. But I can tell you. I mean, just at a very surface level, I can tell you that there are lots of concerns. Um, I have 
significant concerns with respect to how it can possibly be that you can have outdoor restrictions that are limited down to 10 and three times as much indoor when the medical when it's the 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 scientific evidence undeniably states that the outdoor gathering restrictions transmission of covid rather outdoor is nowhere near the transmission indoor so it's inconsistent i don't know how that could possibly be the case and we'll we're taking a very detailed look at that case and there's also all kinds of peripheral facts that are very concerning in that case for instance we see that in that particular uh case you, you note that at the time that there were outdoor gathering restrictions in play there were other protests that were taking place oh yeah and the police weren't out uh handing tickets to anyone at those protests. In fact, they were at those protests bending knees. The Regina police chief himself was in attendance at an outdoor gathering uh, of, of a particular protest that was contrary to the, te- the, the outdoor gathering restrictions. And so the law didn't apply there, and the, but the law did apply to a different type of protest that uh, that protested the government. And, and the police were also there, but they were handing out tickets. And so these are the types of things that are happening in society right now. These are the reasons why the public is mistrusting and losing confidence. And it's important that the, that the public has confidence in the justice system and has confidence in our institutions. And that's our role as lawyers. We want to instill confidence in the justice system. And that's why it's important to bring these cases forward and bring them to the appellate level courts and gain the, the benefit of the appellate level courts. I'm, I'm of the opinion that we have a, a, a very strong court of appeal in Saskatchewan and, and, and quite frankly, in Alberta as well. Uh, we've seen cases where the Alberta Court of Appeal, whether it was Arthur Pavlovsky or whether it's the uh, Saskatchewan Court of Appeal in Strum or other cases where the appellate court comes down with a vastly different view and, and applies the law to the facts. And that is their job. And, that, and I'm confident that uh, it's necessary to bring these cases forward in order to to instill confidence in the justice system and to get these cases right. And I know these cases are very challenging and they're hyper-politicized, but uh, you know, the, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms was not enacted to serve at good times, to serve where things are fine and the Charter isn't being breached. It's only a search and seizure. It's only when the police pulls over the hooligans that's when the charter uh, that, that's not that's not what the charter uh, was enacted for uh it includes that but it was precisely enacted for a time in which if it ever got to a point in which these rights that are inalienable were ever to be challenged that the law the highest and most supreme law of this country would stand in the way of people who seek to demolish the rights of Canadians. And I know that uh, given the nature of many of, of the way things have unfolded and with respect to some decisions and so forth, that some people begin to lose confidence in the application of the charter. And you see that the public is sort of wondering whether the right evidence is being put forward or the right arguments are being made and, and all these sorts of things. And unfortunately, the public doesn't uh, generally know how extremely complicated and complex, uh, rather, these cases are. And so I think what's the most important at this point in time is that these cases continue to come forward and and go to the appellate level. And that's all you can do uh, within this system, as it is, is to put forward the cases, put forward the evidence. And as challenging as it is to do that, you depend on the challenges of the court to look at the evidence, look at the law, and to rule in an unbiased fashion based on the evidence. I think that's probably a good point to finish our discussion today on those stirring words. 
Thank you, Andre, so much for being involved with this episode 37 of Justice with John Carpe. And I look forward to having you on again. Well, thanks so much, Kevin. It was really good to be with you, and I look forward to the next time around.